good to see everybody here. My name is Josh, and uh, tonight I am only the opener. And so my, I have one job this evening. It's to set the context and then uh, pass the rock to the bullpen. Um, and so stick with me for a fast 10-15 together, and then we'll punt, um, mixing my sport metaphor, over to our closer for the evening, okay? So here we are. Uh, we are picking up Acts chapter 4. Uh, if you're new to CSF, we want to say welcome to you. We have this little thing where we teach straight through books of the Bible because we feel like the narrative that God is telling throughout, the, throughout his word is compelling, and we want to find ourselves and his character in that narrative. And so here's how Acts chapter 4 picks up. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. The location is the temple, and now we have three sets of people who are approaching Peter and John. We'll catch you up in just a sec. The priest, captain of the temple guard, and the Sadducees were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So let me tell you who these three people are. The priest... Uh, come from the Old Testament. They're a tribe called the tribe of Levi. Incredibly valuable tribe in the Old Testament. So valuable, in fact, that they get their own book job description. It's called Leviticus. Leviticus is a job description book about how to be a Levite in God's camp. And basically, here's what the book of Leviticus says. It says that you Levites are going to be local teachers of the law, you're going to be temple guardians. You might have seen that as the second group of people there. And you're going to get to kill stuff daily, multiple times. Uh, and they got really good at killing stuff. A little foreshadowing, wink, wink, nudge, nudge right there. The Sadducees are the other group of people that are holding up here. Um, and the Sadducees are an interesting um, sect of the Jewish people. Sadducees have this really cool thing where they only keep 613 laws. <laughs> kind of wild, I get it. But the other side of the Jewish people are not the Sadducees, but they're the Pharisees. And the Pharisees keep 613 laws plus oral tradition. And so there's a tension in the Jewish community between the Sadducees who only keep 613 strictly and the Pharisees who keep all 613 plus all the oral tradition that's laid on top of the 613, not a big deal, right? Except that the Sadducees also do this one other thing little, really, really well. They do this little thing called eye for an eye because it's in Deuteronomy. And so if you keep the first five books of the Bible, one of those laws are if someone pokes out your eye, then you get to come back with a spike, okay, or something like that. That's kind of the way that one works. And so here is the people that are standing up and approaching them because they're saying this. You, this is Peter talking to those groups of people, he's saying, you handed over Jesus to be killed, and you disowned him for Pilate, and you disowned the Holy and Righteous One, and asked that a murderer be released. Now, that's against those Torah books of the Bible. You killed the author of life, but God has done this thing. God has raised Jesus from the dead, and then Peter says this, we've seen him. So there's one other thing about the Sadducees that you need to know, and that's they don't believe in resurrection. And so not only is the Levitical people who keep all 613 laws really well, the Sadducees are there, and the Sadducees don't believe in resurrection. So now all these people are looking at James and John and saying, 
what the heck. And so here we are. This evening, we're going to ask you guys to play the villain in this story. And so my job as the setup man is to give you the backstory so that way when the closer comes and says, okay, you're the villain, you need to know this backstory about who's pointing at Peter and John so you can step into their, you know, sandy sandals, okay? So that's what we have to know. Here we go. Uh, the bad guy, in this scenario, whenever Peter's pointing at him saying, you, 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 they obviously go to bed. And so the very next verse in Acts chapter 4 says, they seize Peter and John because it's evening, and they throw him in the slammer. But many who had heard the message of Peter and John believed, and so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. Interesting little caveat for all of you Bible geeks who've been paying attention from Acts chapter 1 with us. We started with 120 believers who gathered together in the upper room to wait for the promised gift that Jesus had talked about, 120. By Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, it came, that whole flaming tongue thing, and the number jumped to 3,000. And at this point in our story, Acts chapter 4, there are now 5,000. You notice who it is. It's men. Because it's a widely accepted practice. If the man comes home, then the whole household also adopts the faith of the father in this patriarch society. And so the idea here that you all have to capture is this. The church is exploding. Within the last several weeks, the church has exploded. And so the question is, how does the, earth, the, how does the church blow up so quickly? The answer was Acts chapter 2. I'm just catching you up because I'm the setup man. In Jerusalem, Acts chapter 2, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven were there. And that whole tongues of fire thing happened. They heard a sound and a crowd came together in bewilderment. Each one of those God-fearing Jews from every nation in the known world at that time were gathering. And then we got this laundry list of people that we won't try and pronounce tonight that showed up. The next morning, the rulers and the elders and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. We're back to Acts chapter 4. Annas, the high priest, is there. And so is Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other members of the high priest family. Now, this is kind of interesting because remember I said that the Old Testament Levites were a pretty important crowd of people. They got to kill stuff multiple times a day, and they passed down the role of how to be a priest in the temple of God generationally. But all of that changed whenever Rome came in and took over power because all of a sudden the priest the priesthood, the Levite clan, it went to the highest bidder. And so what you see here, the reason that there were dropping names, specifically Annas and Caiaphas, those are the two power players in all of Jerusalem. So Peter is standing up in front of the people who are really good at killing, and not only the tribe of people who are good at it, but the ones who are politically the most powerful, and he is standing in front of the two top dogs. And this is what they say. Peter and John are brought before them and they began to be questioned. By what power or by what name do you do this? Basically, this question is saying, how are you doing the thing that we cannot deny you have done? So you have to go into your way back tanks from last, last week and you will know that the guy who was formerly lame for 40 years is now not at the gate called Beautiful. He is standing with 
Peter and John jumping. And that was the whole sermon from last week. By what name, we have to talk about a, li- a fun little word called circumlocution. Now, circumlocution is not painful, even though it sounds kind of painful. We do not have a Genesis 34 moment happening here, Shelby Baylor. What we have is the reality, is the reality of this. When the chief priests and elders are meeting in Jerusalem, oh, I doubled down on this slide. Here's what we get throughout the story of the Old Testament. Had the same slide twice, really tricked me. Here's what we get throughout the Old Testament. We get this idea that God gives his name attributes, and it shows up in powerful ways. So in Isaiah, we have the name of the Lord coming from heaven. By the time you get to Exodus, or backwards to Exodus, we get this little storyline that God can give his name to acting agents. Check it out. I'm sending an angel ahead of you to guard you along the way, to bring you to a place I've prepared. Don't rebel against my angel. He won't forgive your rebellion. Here's why. My name is in him. And so the question that John and Peter are being asked, by whose name, there's almost an insinuation that this is magic power. How are you doing this thing that we can't deny you have done? Like, what dark magic have you done? Have you pulled on us? And that is where Peter takes a deep breath and firmly plants his tongue into his cheek. And you'll see exactly what I mean. Peter's filled with the Holy Spirit and says, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account for an act of kindness, right, that's the tongue part, shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, and now is where he takes that deep breath and he says some really dangerous things to the corrupt people in front of him. Know this, you and all people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified but God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. And so what he does in those last three colors is he throws down Christ attached to a real person who these men know Because they've heard Peter's sermon saying, you killed him, you killed him, you killed him. It was Jesus, and they attached Nazareth to it. So it's a real man who you killed but has an attached understanding, the Messiah. So this is our slides from last week. We said, what does the man who is lame get? He gets the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The name uh, Christ is the, is the person and the character of Jesus in that moment. But then we fast-forwarded that by the end of the sermon. We said this, when Peter looks out at the people listening to him, that's you listening to me, now all of a sudden Peter says, and now you are witnesses to what you have seen and heard here in the story. And now all of a sudden, when we say the name Jesus Christ, we're talking about the same theological throwdown, but it's where you are to take on the person and the character of Christ in the way that you move through your world. That was your role, and that is what Peter is doing here. Circumlocution is a name theology, where in the Old Testament story, We don't always say Elohim, Yahweh, God, the Lord. We say the name. And that is Peter's answer to the corrupt 
who are looking at him and saying, by what dark magic have you done this? And Peter puts a stake in the ground and he makes this claim. Jesus is the stone the builders have rejected that is now the cornerstone. It's a reference from Psalm 118. Jesus himself uses Psalm 118 about himself four different times in the gospel. And Peter's claiming that again and putting it in front of the, of the rulers. Salvation is found in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And all of a sudden we get this tension point, right, where our Western ears hear there's one way to know God. And we get this tension point in us about the restrictiveness of the name of Jesus. And there's this idea right here that's really beautiful. It's the story of the stone throughout the whole narrative of scripture. There's one thing that I've been so proud of to have different teachers, young teachers, come up and stand with me the people who I say yes to and I hand my microphone to to talk to you guys are people who are growing in the narrative arc of the Bible, their own understanding. And what I'm watching happen is young students start to put down these mega, mega pieces of scripture into their lives and they're starting to stand on it and they fall off of it from time to time. I fall off of my theological understanding from time to time. But I always come back to this person of Jesus and his calling of my life to move into the world around me, standing on the foundation. And so whenever Peter throws out this stone, he's telling a giant story, which is God is our foundation and this anticipation of a Messiah coming, of Jesus Christ, not his last name, coming Someone who will have the person and the character of all that God's kingdom embodies that we are to learn how to stand on strong. And then he says this, salvation is found nowhere else. Salvation sounds like a tough word, but it's an incredibly hope and helpful word for you and I. Salvation is a hope-filled word word. Because what salvation means is it's a way that humanity is restored to relationship with God. And Christ is the cornerstone. He is the one we must build everything off of, find our foundation on, so we can make our way back to the family of God. And the crazy part of salvation, whenever we hear the narratives of scripture told over and over and over it's that God is willing to give us that foundation again that fast. And so to slip off of it is not to shame. It's the chance to see because the alternative to standing on the stone is the stone becomes a stumbling block in which as you're walking on your own, donk, and you begin to break. And that is the story that you will find as you read scripture for yourself. Either you're building on the cornerstone or it is breaking you. And so when you hear the restrictive word of Christianity, don't hear 
solitary and small, hear huge and foundational and invitational and hope and help for you to build your life on. And that's the knowledge that Peter drops on the bad guys. So with that, please give a welcome to your favorite four-year-old demonic little boy. I'm really thankful for the opportunity to get to speak with you guys tonight. Uh, this story Josh and I were going through uh, for the past couple of weeks is trying to pull out the nuance and figuring out uh, what message we want to talk about. And as we're doing that, uh, I can't help but notice uh, these elements that we see in this story. Oh, it's still up there. Um, <laughs> the elements we see in this story in Acts 4. Uh, they remind me of a story we've already read before. There's, we see the Sanhedrin, we see Peter, and we see a trial. And the answer there is like in Luke 22, uh, there's a similar story with all these elements. And for us that don't know, we've forgotten. Luke 22 is a story where Jesus has just been arrested uh, by the Sanhedrin, by the Jewish uh, leaders of the day, and he's on trial uh, for uh, crimes he's committed. Um, and so that's, that's the uh, story that we're jumping into. And these stories have, these, the story in Luke and Acts has similarities and differences, which are important to understand because I think it contextualizes what we read in Acts 4, and it brings it to life a little bit. So uh, we're going to, I'm just going to break it down. We have, uh, we're going to just, yeah, we're going yeah, to go through the Venn diagram, um, just comparing them. So it's important to start, <laughs> this actually took me a second to understand. I was like, oh, it's funny. Yeah, that, yeah. Um, yeah, but there's a, the first thing I want to talk about is the first similarity we can see, we can notice in Luke and Acts. Uh, we have the Sanhedrin's present in both. And it's the same Sanhedrin who, had, who put Jesus on trial and who are now putting Peter and John on trial. Um, and it's important to know, given like all Josh talked about, their corruption and their motive behind that. So it's important to keep in mind. Uh, then if I want to just walk us through uh, what we see on the side of Luke uh, the, the Luke story about Peter. Uh, first of all, we have Peter's location is something we see. He's, he's around the, the, the trial. He's present with Jesus, but he's not even inside the courtroom. He's outside in a garden looking to have Peter. Peter's in his cell, um, and that's important to keep in mind. Another difference we see is we have Peter. Peter's just sitting there, like, not thinking about anything. He has a motive, uh, and it's driven uh, by, by fear. Peter, Peter's motive is one of self-preservation as he's watching his Lord and Savior um, on trial. Now, uh, that's important to keep in mind because Luke also has what I would call an accuser, uh, at least in this case, not really an accuser. We have a servant girl who uh, recognizes Peter because she's seen him with Jesus and says, aren't you a disciple? A simple question like that. And it's important to keep in mind Peter's motive is, is one driven by fear. Um, and this girl does not have any authority or any threat to the question. She's not going to persecute him or put him on trial. She's just recognizing and asking him a question. Yet, it's important to keep in mind Luke, uh, Peter's location, Peter's motive, and who's asking him the question because it all plays into how he responds because Peter does get a, a chance to respond here in Luke. But given all of what I've talked about, it leads into his response, which is ultimately with cowardice. Because he's afraid for his own life, because he's, he's driven by his own self, uh, desire for self-preservation, he, he turns to denial and betrayal of Jesus uh, because he thinks, like, I don't want Jesus to die, but also I don't want to die either. I mean, I'm here. He, it's important to notice. He's there at the trial. He's outside knowing he's got to do something, but he's paralyzed by this fear. Right, it's not like not as though he could have been anywhere else, but he's there. Um, but ultimately, it's it's that I don't want to get roped into this either. Even though this servant girl asking him a question isn't going to to be the one to drag him in as well, but he still responds. He cannot uh, 
he cannot proclaim the name of Jesus. Now, so we have that. We have, we have the way Peter responded in Luke, and now we, have, we can jump back to Acts, and we can compare these things. Because just as Luke, uh, sorry, as, as Peter uh, had, had a location in the first story, he's also present in a location in Acts. Now, this time, he's on trial. He's inside the courtroom. And uh, this, this is, I guess, kind of speculation, but we could definitely make a very educated guess. This is the same exact courtroom, too. It's in Jerusalem. It's the same Sanhedrin. He was just a couple, like, what, months ago on the outside looking through a window. Jesus, now he's the one on trial. He's the one whose neck is on the line. Uh, literally. No, like, yeah, not at all figuratively. Uh, but Luke also, uh, sorry, I keep saying Luke. Peter also has a motive here. And this time, it, it would make sense to me to think, okay, is, he's going to be fearful here. And uh, it probably was, but uh, his motive here di- is different from Luke because now his motive is, uh, it is, uh, ooh, excuse me, kingdom advancement. Instead of worrying about his own life and what he can preserve, and he's more concerned about what can be done through his life and what his life can do for the kingdom of God. And when I say kingdom, uh, what I, all I mean by that is Jesus has this message and this mission with his, with his story, and it's to redeem the world. And Peter cares now more about that and, what, and how he can play into that than he does just saving his own skin. Now, uh, that's his motive. And then Peter also now has an accuser, now in more of a literal sense, because he's on trial. And instead of a servant girl who has no authority and no threat to offer him, he's being uh, interrogated by the high priest, by the Sanhedrin, who have all power and all threat to, to put on Peter and John. Uh, and keep in mind, this is the, still the same Sanhedrin who killed Jesus. They're aware of this. And yet, and so speaking of this accuser, I think it's important to step into their shoes for a second. Let's see what they're thinking and what they're perceiving about the situation. Like, so Josh already set up, uh, like, their, their whole, the idea of, like, how they're corrupting the law and all of that and how the reason why they killed Jesus. Uh, so we're going to jump in now and just read uh, verses 13 and 15 of Acts chapter 4. Um, so... It says, now notice the they. When they say they, most of the time they're referring to Sanhedrin. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, that's the, that's the lame man who's now leaping, praising the name of Jesus, just like Peter and John, there was nothing they could say, so they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. Now this brings us to the second similarity we can, similarity we can see in the stories between Luke and Acts. Uh, just as this is the same Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin's motive stays consistent. In the first story in Luke, their, their motive is one of power preservation, and it is the same motive in Acts because Jesus is, is subverting and undermining everything that they base their power in and their lives on because they're using this law that they're supposed to be using for redemptive purposes to oppress their people and to get money from them and to get comfortability. And Jesus has come, and naturally, if Jesus is the fulfillment of that law, he's going to challenge that. So they, they kill Jesus for that, and then they see, again, somehow this movement is still happening. Peter and John are still, like you said, the church is booming, right? But Peter and John are also the leaders of that. They're driving this explosion of the church, and now there's somebody else who a miracle is performed in the name of Jesus, and now he's jumping for joy. Uh, that's a problem for them. They thought they, they took care of the problem, but now their power is still being threatened. So uh, I, I now want to kick it to you guys. Um, be the bad guys. Be the villain. As a Sanhedrin, the, the verse there, if you want to go back to that verse really quick, 
it says that they withdrew, they told, they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin, and they conferred together. What are you guys going to confer about? Keep all these things in mind. Your power is being threatened. You guys uh, need to try and maintain your control, but these guys are challenging it. You tell them to leave. You're going to talk together. What are you going to talk about? What's your decision? We'll come in it. All right. That's good. I can't whistle, but... Does that work? Yeah, hey, it worked. Better than a whistle. Cool. All right. What are you guys' thoughts? Haley. Yeah. Yeah. It's a threat to you. You got to squash it, right? Like. Mm. Yes. Yeah, that's, uh, you touched on something that they, they allude to later on there. Yeah, that's great. That's great. It's like we killed him. That had to work. It didn't work. Okay, I want to kill him. I'm mad at him, but like we got to figure out a different way to shut him up. Yeah, that's cool. Anybody else? All right. Yeah, so uh, th- that's great. That's uh, All of that is touching on, uh, I think, definitely what they're talking about. But we have the answer here in Acts 4, verses 18 through 20. Then they called them in again, that's Peter and John, and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help but speaking uh, about what we have seen and heard. So this brings us into that point there. Their response there brings us into uh, the next difference between Luke and Acts. And that is Peter had a chance to respond to the servant girl, to his accuser. He has a chance to respond now. But instead of it being one of betrayal and cowardice, it's one of courage. Uh, not just a courage. We see that even in verses uh, 8 through 12 in, verse four, uh, in chapter 4 when he's saying, you killed, you killed, you rejected, all of that. That's still pretty incredibly courageous to, to say that to these people that have the power to kill him. He's aware of that. But then he comes back. He has time to maybe back off. He's like, they can, they can further bring him in. They say, don't do it. Which is, and then he responds with not just like accusation back to them, but with sarcasm. Do you like, if you go back to that verse there, he says, you be the judges. These are the literal judges of God's law. And he says, now, and, and he says, what's right? In God's eyes, should we listen to God or to you? Obviously, the answer they should say is listen to God. But he's saying, you guys should be the judges of God's law in a righteous way. You're not that at all. You could be, but you're not going to be. So you be the judges. It's an obvious answer uh, to that question, but they know the way they're going to respond. That's courageous. Um, and uh, it's, it's also important to keep in mind, just like in Luke, how uh, Peter's location, his motive, the person asking him a question, and then his re- all of that plays into their response. Before, the stakes couldn't be lower, right? It's like he, he, he's not going to be drawn into court for this. He's just, it's just a simple question. So, yeah, I know, I know that guy. He's, he's my rabbi. But now the stakes couldn't be higher. Like they, they've seen, they, they kill people for this kind of stuff. They kill people for the same message that they're preaching. And yet still they responded with courage. So uh, let's, go, let's go back to Luke really quick. There's some more differences I'd like to point out before we, we jump into this. So in Luke, a uh, simple fact is uh, that Jesus is present in Luke. He's still physically there. He's still alive with the disciples um, that, that had to be some source of comfort, right? But, uh, so in, in the fact that Jesus is there, he's in the courtroom, disciples are out in the garden, it's easy 
to, to recognize him. It's, and they re- so the, the servant girl who says, have you been with Jesus? It's not by any other means except for the fact that she's, I've seen you walking with this guy. I, I, she recognizes Peter by proximity. Now, let's go back to Acts. Uh, Jesus is gone. He's no longer with the disciples, physically, of course, you know, spiritually. Um, but physically, he's, not, he's no longer there. You'd expect there to be uh, some kind of, more, again, increased fear for that reason. But because Jesus is absent, he's not with the disciples. They still get, Peter still gets recognized, but this time it's not because he was close to next to Jesus. It's because Jesus' spirit was recognizable in Peter. So you have a difference between recognized by proximity and spirit. Uh, and I'm not sure about you guys, but these differences don't seem to be making any sense. How in the world is this guy who's being asked this question by a child going to respond in a selfish, cowardly way, but then when these people that have the right, have the power to kill him and that want to kill him, he responds with courage. It seems backwards. Like, I can understand Peter being like, yeah, no, I'm a disciple of Jesus, like, to the girl, like, it's, yeah, I'm, I'm proud of that. And then it flipping, it's like, well, now my, my life's on the line. I don't really know who this guy is. I don't really care about that much anymore. You can let me go. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but that's the difference. Before, Peter wasn't tapped into the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, and now he has it, and now he has the ability to stand up for what is right, for what he believes in, and to be courageous. Now, there's, uh, there's one more connection point between Luke and Acts that I think is important to talk about, uh, and that is, in both stories, Peter is unschooled and ordinary. And that makes sense in the, in the beginning, you know, they're, they're disciples of Jesus, they're learning under him, uh, but you might expect them to be a little bit, at least a little bit more educated after Jesus leaves, but they, they recognize that in verse 13, if we could jump back to that. Um, they see, sorry, seeing that they realized that they were unschooled and ordinary men, and they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. It is because of how ordinary that they are, there's no way they could have this courage on their own. It's undeniable to them that there's something different, and that is the Spirit of God. And these are people that recognize that fact but still don't care. They still want to try and squash it. Uh, and, guys, that's us. That's me, and that's you. Like, we're unschooled and ordinary. We don't, we're not professors and the, in the, we're not rabbis in the law of God. We don't know these things as nearly to the extent that Peter and John would have, and they were still unschooled and ordinary. And even if we were uh, highly educated in these things, how much different is God's intelligence and his knowledge compared to ours? So we, and this is, this is <laughs> kind of the, the story of how I even got up here. A couple weeks ago, I'm watching my friends up here doing this thing, and I was getting nervous for them. I feel like i like feeling queasy, like there's no way I can do this, because I knew it was coming up. So I go up to Josh, and I'm like, I don't think I want to, I can do this anymore. And he's like, why? I'm like, I'm afraid. And he said, perfect. That's, <laughs> that's why. Like I'm, that's because the, the point isn't me. If I get up here and I try to tell a message based on my education or my knowledge, it's not going to be worth listening to. But if it's the Holy Spirit trying to share something through me, that's the difference. And that's the difference in, in all of us. We don't have to have it all figured out and all put together. It isn't relying on us. It never was about us. We can tap into the Holy Spirit and we can recognize that that's what he's trying to do through us. He's trying to do, he's trying to advance his kingdom and his mission through us by his Holy Spirit. And this is, by the way, like we've, we've talked about, this is the answer to that riddle of how in the world are they, is Peter even able to respond in this way so differently? It's also the source of this courage I was just talking about, right? Uh, and I, I want to take a moment to talk about their courage because it isn't, we could read this on the other side of history. We know the story. We know what happened, right? Yeah, because Jesus is all-powerful. Of course, they were fine. But think about it. They got put in jail the night before this trial. There's no way they were sitting there like, I, don't, I wonder what's going to happen. They know the Sanhedrin. They know their power. They know their motives. They're, they're sitting in fear the entire night. There's no way that they're, they're, they feel confident going into this trial. 
And I would even, I would even imagine that Peter's remembering the way he got out of, got out of it last time. Yeah, sure, he felt ashamed, but at least he's alive. I'm sure he felt the temptation, even in the trial, in the prison the night before, and then also when he's in front of the Sanhedrin, like, you could definitely back down right now to say, you know what, I don't know this Jesus. I don't know what I was talking about before. I was drunk or something, right? Like Pentecost. That's, uh... <laughs> and he had the opportunity, too, when they go into the conferral. It's like, you know what, we were pretty extreme there, John. How about we just cool it for a bit? I still want to be able to live after this. Uh, but they go back, and they're like, who be the judges? It's, like they're, they're, it's smug almost. Like, who has the courage to do that? Um, and I, so I don't imagine them leaving the Sanhedrin after they let them go, after threatening them some more. I don't imagine them walking out like mic drop, excited. Like, they, they see all the believers and like, yeah, you guys are awesome. You killed, you guys embarrassed them in there. You know, I don't see that at all. I see them walking out the door, slamming behind them, their knees shaking. They have to hold each other up so they don't fall over because they're so amazed and afraid of what just happened. It's not a moment of, of just of, of victory, it's, or it is a moment of victory. It's not a moment of, of just expected uh, high emotion. It's one of unbelievable, shocking, knee-shaking uh, moment. Um, and here's a spoiler alert, too. So they had courage in this moment. They had to ask for it. But they had to ask for it again later on. So we see later in uh, verses 29 and 30 of, of chapter 4, uh, now, Lord, consider these threats, which they were just threatened with again, and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Back to that whole idea of, like, we're doing this in the name of Jesus. We're, gonna, we're not going to be ashamed of that. We're going to keep doing it. It isn't as though they left that trial. Like, now, okay, I was afraid then, but now I got the confidence to keep doing this again and again and again. They're still afraid. They need, that, they need to ask for this boldness again and again. And I want to connect this to the idea that Josh was talking about uh, back when we talked about Pentecost, that this, when the Holy Spirit fills us, when we ask the Holy Spirit to inhabit us and to give us what we need uh, to advance his kingdom, it is not like a one-time thing. Oh, I fill it with the Holy Spirit. I'm good to go forever. It's a continual daily thing to know I need the Holy Spirit in my life right now because I am not enough on my own. I cannot do these things on my own, but you can do it through me. Um, so just as, as much as that is true with the Holy Spirit, the courage that only comes from the Holy Spirit, that's got to be true as well. So I don't just have courage one time and for always. I, I have to come back and keep asking the Lord to fill me with his courage. Uh, I, there's so many things that we can be involved in on this campus. We, like, we're, we're preparing for a career. We might be involved in other organizations, sororities, fraternities, and these are all good things. And we can often get overwhelmed and think, I don't know if I can handle all this commitment. Uh, but we forget the fact that the one who has blessed us in the first place with these opportunities to be in this ministry, to be pouring into others, is also the sustainer of those blessings too. And he's the one that gives us the courage and, the, and whatever we need, the, the wisdom, the strength to keep on uh, fulfilling his purpose for our lives. And we get to tap into that. So uh, th- that's, that's the great thing is that this, is, this courage, this Holy Spirit is something that we can pray for in any situation. Not only that, God wants to give it to us in any situation. We just got to ask. So on that note, uh, I'm going to start. To, I'm going to pray. I'm going to close this out. We're going to end in worship. Uh, but if you guys need prayer uh, because of something God laid on your heart from this, from tonight, or whether it's something that's been going on uh, in in your background, your backstory before you've walked in here, we have we'll have people in the in the uh, foyer who would love to pray for you and walk you through this. Because guys, this is how we are filled with the Holy Spirit. We don't do these things on our own. It is by prayer and it is by the Holy Spirit alone that we're able to redeem the world the way that God has intended it to be. All right. Dear God, thank you so much for uh, this ministry, the opportunity that we have to be here on this campus, um, the opportunity we have to be uh, a difference maker for your kingdom, not because of anything we could do, 
but because we know that it is your Holy Spirit that enables us to do all things, God, all these good things that you have blessed us with. I pray now, God, that uh, uh, those of us here tonight, um, if, we, if we are needing courage, if we're needing your Holy Spirit, God, that we would trust uh, in the fact that you want to offer it to us. And not only that, God, we can confidently expect when we pray that you will be faithful uh, with your promise. You will fill us with your courage. Uh, God, I pray that the rest of the night we glorify you in all that we say and do, uh, and that we leave this place um, examples of you, that people might see us, our unschooled, ordinary lives, and see that there's something different there, and it's you. I pray that they'd see that, and we, be, we glorify you based on our deeds. In your name that I pray, Father, all these things. Amen.